0: I wanted to uh, talk tonight about loving kindness and do something of an overview of the, the nature of the practice. Um, but first, just kind of take note of the fact that the first day is, is just about over. And as I'm sure has been mentioned today already, traditionally or classically, one knows in, in terms of meditation lore that the first couple of days of a retreat tend to be absolutely the most difficult part. Not exclusively, it's not to say that, you know, by the third morning one sails free. Um, There can be challenges and difficulties, but that, that beginning period, this beginning period which involves so much adjustment to lack of sensory stimulation, to slowing down, to... It's a little like culture shock, really. You know, and, and uh, after a while, it's like your whole system kind of unwinds and uh, relaxes, and that incredibly wild careening one tends to go through in the first couple of days between sleepiness and restlessness tends to settle down. I often say when I am sitting a retreat myself, it's like in those first couple of days I so commonly hear these two voices inside my mind. One voice says, there's nothing happening here. It must be time to go to sleep. And even if I you know, just slept 15 hours, it makes no difference. I come into the hall, I sit down to meditate, gone. Or the other voice says, there's nothing happening here. Let's make something happen and just huge torrent of thinking and planning and replanning and replanning the very same event and, and so on. Just, you know, this kind of crazy restlessness takes over and it fills the space, which is exactly what I want, or so I think. But over time, uh, the kind of intense waves of sleepiness and restlessness will calm down as one's system adjusts. So as with all things here, it's not the experience so much that is the problem, but our relationship to the experience. And so the thing to really be aware of is utterly believing the thought which says, oh no, seven more days exactly like this as though we're never going to change, as though we knew. You know, so that actually is, is quite fascinating, to see those habits of mind where we take an experience, especially a difficult experience in the moment, and project it into a seemingly unchanging future. And we craft an entire self-image around it. I am the one. Everyone else in the room is quiet. They're in bliss. They're not thinking. If they were thinking, they would be beautiful thoughts. I'm the only one who's having these stupid thoughts. and You know, there's so many things we do on top of an experience. And so sometimes what we say is in meditation practice, what we're doing is we're looking for the add-ons. It's like, The original, you could say pure experience, physical, emotional, can be difficult enough. But on top of that, we add on, this is how it's going to feel tomorrow. We add on, oh, this means this about me, and it's unalterable, and so on. So what we're letting go of, what we're peeling away, really are these add-ons, these superstructures that we have created that can cause us so much difficulty. So welcome again to your retreat. There's a a sutta or a a teaching of the Buddhas, which I uh, like tremendously, which goes something like this, where the Buddha says, Abandon that which is unwholesome... Or unskillful is another translation of that. Abandon that which is unskillful. You can abandon the unskillful. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. Then he goes on to say, Cultivate the good. You can cultivate the good. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. And there are a few reasons that I have always really appreciated that passage. One is the, the distinction that is done so classically in Buddhist teaching between skillful and unskillful or wholesome and unwholesome. It's not good and bad. It's not right and wrong. It's not good and evil. But it's recognizing that certain tendencies of mind, certain habits, certain um, configurations or ways of being lead to separation, to an increase in, in holding on and fear and anger they lead to a a kind of sense of limitation of being thwarted a futility of despair that's what's considered unskillful it's not bad and it's not crummy and it's not wretched it's painful and it leads to greater and greater pain for ourselves and for others so it's considered unskillful and in just that same way there are qualities that are considered skillful that we engender we nurture we nourish, we bring forth, we take care of, and those qualities are the ones that lead to the end of suffering, that are skillful, that lead to a recognition of connection. They lead to wisdom. They lead to loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity, which is really the kind of bedrock of of this particular retreat. And another reason I really like that passage so much, even besides the the distinction between that which is skillful and that which is unskillful, is, is that very almost like quirky little thing, like if it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it, which I've always considered really a kind of breathtaking aspect of the Buddha's vision of life, which is that, such total change is considered possible, and for everybody. It, it's a totally inclusive vision. It's not just that the, the special people or the lucky people or certain kinds of people who've, who've jumped through hoops or have some unbelievable kind of qualifications. It's not just they who can make a difference in their lives. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. One can imagine a a kind of teaching where we are asked to look in awe at the accomplishments of others and um, somehow feel like we are less and less inside ourselves. And, And this is totally different than that. We say sometimes that when we look at the Buddha, say, in the taking of refuge, or we look at a Buddha image, what we are really looking at is ourselves. Because the Buddha is said to have been a human being with certain experiences of awakening that came from the power of his own awareness. And so that sense of tremendous wisdom, of boundless love that the Buddha Exemplifies is said to exist within each one of us. At least, at the very least, as a kind of seed or potential, as a capacity. And it's taught that as a capacity, this this possibility of awakening or love or compassion is never, ever destroyed. It may be and usually is covered over, hard to find, hard to trust. It may be obscured, but it's there. And so when we look at the Buddha, we really see ourselves. And it's not ourselves in our, our usually kind of, you know, self-preoccupied way, you know, I am so great and everyone else is so lowly. It is I who have this capacity, as a sort of mask for our own fear and uh, self-contempt. So we say we look at the Buddha to see ourselves. We look at ourselves to see all of life, to see all beings. So it's almost like a, a transparency. There is no, no concept of like the other in that way. We all have this capacity. And we practice or we come together in an experience like this because it's possible. We don't have to just hold that distantly but we can actualize it, we can nurture it, we can take the time, we can make the choices that actually help that capacity for love and compassion and so on to to actually flower. You know, this is in very sharp contrast to how we normally view ourselves, isn't it? I think... um, There's this this story I tell sometimes that I wrote about somewhere about um, this time I went uh, with some friends to do a retreat. Someone had rented a house for us and someone uh, had left in the bedroom I was moving into on the desk they'd left a cartoon from the Peanuts comic strip. And in the the first frame of the cartoon Lucy is talking to Charlie Brown and she says you know Charlie Brown what your problem is the problem with you is that you're you and then poor Charlie Brown looks at her and says well what in the world can I do about that then in the third and and final frame Lucy looks at him and says I don't pretend to be able to give advice I merely point out the problem (laughs) And somehow, whenever I was doing walking meditation by that desk, my eye would fall on that line, the problem with you is that you're you. Because for so many years of my life, that Lucy voice, as I now call her, was so dominant. If you really knew who you were, it would be a pretty sad story, Charlie Brown. It would be better not to look. It would be so discouraging, so unpleasant. It would be really bad news. So the Buddha's narrative is, is so much the opposite of that. If you really knew who you were, it would be pretty fantastic. Underneath the habits and the fears and the uh, kind of repetitive voices that arise and then pass away in, in different circumstances, in different conditions. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. And that really is the whole nature of doing meditation practice. It's not a sort of desperate act, like we have nothing inside, and somehow if we can grab onto a great experience and keep it, we would feel better. It's much more about coming to rest upon that sense of of the capacity of the potential that exists, and using the tools, using the methodology to abide there more and more, to rest there, to feel confident there, to understand what to do when we're not there. There's so much about meditation practice of all kinds that's really about the return, how to come back, how to renew, how to begin again, how to start over, So all of that is really um, contained in the teaching of the actual process. So the four qualities that are usually talked about together, which really are, along with mindfulness, forming the, the theme of this retreat, are together, those four known as the four Brahma Viharas. Brahma meaning... Celestial or supreme or one translation I heard of it that I liked a lot was the word best. Vihara meaning dwelling or abiding or home. So taken together, these four qualities are said to form our best home. And like any home, we may not be there all the time. We certainly might leave. But we know what it's like when we come back. That should be the place where we have the least pretense, where we feel most natural, most real, most authentic. We're not trying to impress anybody or put on a, a facade or some kind of phony persona. It's so genuine. We're at home. So the practice, say the practice of loving kindness or metta, in Pali, is the practice of coming home to these qualities, being more able to abide there, knowing how to come back gracefully, more quickly, again and again. Metta, um, which of course you have all seen in the front of the building, is usually translated from the Pali the language of the original Buddhist text, as loving-kindness, it most literally means friendship. And something that, you know, through, certainly through your practice, through the different um, talks, through the questions, um, through the dialogues we'll have, these are Qualities that are very subtle. They're not that easy to understand. They're commonly mistaken for other things. Um, And those are all things that we will explore. So the sense of metta or friendship. Somebody once said to me that they absolutely detested loving kindness practice because it reminded them of a continually enforced Valentine's Day. It's like on the count of three, you will be filled with love, you know, something um, coercive, unreal, like this fake thing we put on, you know, that we may have very difficult feelings roiling, and we squash them down and just sort of smile. Um, But of course that's not what's meant by that love or loving kindness Uh, is considered to be a tremendous power, a, a tremendous strength, and something that is really not caught in our usual emphasis either on a sense of self and other, us and them, division, separation, alienation, exclusion, or in what we often do, Um, which is to have this kind of self-preoccupation, not because we think we're so great, you know, or so wondrous, um, but in in a kind of desperate measure to somehow bolster our, our sense of who we are. It's not easy to understand the nature of love or loving kindness or kindness for that matter it's often the case that something like kindness is considered really a, a pretty much a secondary virtue, if that. You know, where you have the sense, well, if you can't be brilliant and you can't be courageous and you can't be brilliant and you can't be wonderful and, you know, you can't be exciting and you can't be funny, well, be kind, you know. <laughs> it's like you got to try something, you know. It's like so nothing. And really, in many ways, that's how we're taught, you know. But our life experience is very different than that, where we may reflect back on people who've influenced us a lot or helped us a lot or been on our side or encouraged us, and their kindness is immense for us. Or times when we've extended kindness to to someone else and the, the joy that actually comes in that reflection. It's a quality that has a, a depth and a power so much beyond how we ordinarily can think of it. And so this exploration is really, it's not always easy, you know. There are a lot of challenging notions that we hold about ourselves, about what we're capable of, about what strength is about what we're used to, what we're accustomed to, our willingness to be different than that. You know, not too long ago I was um I was sitting on a train in New York State going back into uh New York City and I happened to be sitting on one side um on my left was a woman having a fairly loud conversation on a cell phone, and on my right was a man getting increasingly agitated at the volume of her call. And she was kind of going on and he was wiggling and squirming and muttering and I knew he was going to blow, you know, he was just going to like lose his temper. And sure enough, you know, at one point he just started screaming at the top of his lungs you're making too much noise. And I was sitting there in between the two of them, and I looked at him and I thought, so are you. (laughs) And what came into my mind is this quotation, usually attributed to Albert Einstein, where uh, he said, the significant problems that we face cannot be solved by the same level of thinking that created them the significant problems that we face cannot be solved by the same level of thinking that created them. And I see loving kindness practice very much in that sense. As I you know, talked about it last night, it's something bold to step out of the dynamic of, you know, that we're so used to and to dare to imagine what's it like when I use my attention in a different way toward myself, Toward others, to be willing to take the risk to make the experiment. It's not holding a, a kind of phony notion like, I am going to be so goody-goody and wondrous and I'm only going to smile, and you know, it's not like that. But it is this enormous willingness to pay attention and to use our attention in some radically different ways. So here's a simple example. Uh, Let's say that at the end of the day, you have the habit of assessing your day, yourself, in your day. Like, how would I do today? Many people would say that uh, they have a tendency toward almost a kind of fixation with the negative. So maybe you said something really stupid at this meeting at lunch. What do you remember at the end of the day? It's that really stupid thing you said at lunch. And you go over it and over it and over it. The 50 great things you also did that day, gone. Like they never were. So loving-kindness practice isn't a kind of self-deception. It's not trying to lose discriminating awareness or intelligence. It's not like saying... Wasn't that remarkably witty and wonderful, that thing I said at lunch? Maybe it was really stupid, you know, and you acknowledge that and the pain of that. But can you open your attention to the other parts of the day? Can you see yourself not just as the stupid person who said that stupid thing and always will do stupid things, Can you actually recollect other things within you, of the day, in your life? To do that actually doesn't happen automatically. It takes a kind of effort. It's not an effort that's strained or bullying, you know, or um, coercive, as I said, or phony. But it's actually taking it's quality of awareness, which has habitually gotten fixated on the negative and opening. It's consciously moving your attention to the good within you. Most people don't like that. You know, it takes, really what it takes is intention and willingness to say, wow, I'm going to take that risk. I'm so used to doing this one thing. What's it like? When I pay attention to these other aspects of myself, it doesn't feel totally comfortable. Right away, it feels a little yucky, like, eh. Let me go back and remember the other stupid thing I said today. (laughs) That feels better. It takes some effort, but it's the right kind of effort because it's like making the experiment. It's being creative Abandon that which is unskillful, cultivate the good. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. It's as though you're seeing your own mind, your own heart, your own life as your creative medium. What happens? So that's my favorite thing to say about loving kindness practice. What happens? What happens when, in looking at oneself, we don't just fixate on the negative? What happens when we take the time and make the effort with all those many beings we usually look right through, or ignore, or discount, or discredit, and we stop and we pay attention? What happens? And what happens when we listen? I've certainly had the experience and I think we probably all have, you know, where you have already drawn a conclusion about somebody. Maybe you've never even met them before, but somehow they've got a category, you know, and maybe you have met them, maybe you haven't, but you filed them away. So much so that as they're relating to, you, as they're speaking, you don't even really listen anymore. And then something happens so that you stop. And you gather your attention and you do listen with a a sort of openness or tenderness or willingness to hear. Sometimes they're very big and beautiful surprises that we would have missed altogether because we just weren't there to receive them. So what happens when we are not so seized by our expectations or preconceptions, and we're actually more there. What happens with all those many beings that we do not feel have anything to do with us? But they do. You know, this isn't fanciful. This isn't wishful thinking. This is a worldview that is very truthful, that we are all connected. This is actually how things are like it or not. And so I see loving kindness not so much as an emotional state or sentiment uh, or even a feeling, but a kind of sensibility. It's a way of using awareness that's open, that's flexible, that's present, and that is wise. It has the wisdom of being able to see things as they actually are. It's more truthful in many ways than our normal um, kinds of reactive states. What happens when we stop? A kind of headlong rush to judgment. Or what happens when we look at all those we have somehow categorized as the other and have... Rejected in some way as though their lives have nothing to do with us. What happens when we challenge those things, when we loosen the grip of that, when we pay attention in a different way? So that's kind of the exciting journey of loving kindness. I think it's a, a tremendous process of discovery. What you don't want is to have that image, you know, of what it should feel like, what you should be experiencing in doing the practice, because then, of course, you will judge yourself against the the image, and the image may be completely irrelevant anyway. First of all, as I said last night, what really matters is how we are in life. And it may be that the kinds of transformations that are coming about are coming about both in attention and intention and may not have a reflection in a kind of emotional state. It's like the the story I usually tell is about the first um, month that we moved into this building, so February of 1976. Those of us who were here at the beginning thought, well, we'll just sit here for a month. That's how we'll inaugurate the place. And I... I'd always known about loving-kindness practice. I'd done it for an hour here or there, which is the way we we tended to do it. And I also knew how it was done when you did it systematically or intensively, which is that you go through these various categories of beings, which will start tomorrow, uh, offering loving-kindness, first of all, to yourself and moving on through these various categories until you come to all beings everywhere, So I'd never done it, but I thought, well, you know, I have a month, and I know what to do, so why don't I just take this month and do intensive, structured loving-kindness practice? So I was was living upstairs in one of the rooms, and I did that. I started for the first week, and I spent the entire week offering loving-kindness to myself, whether sitting in meditation or walking, or standing or lying down, I was silently repeating these phrases of loving kindness for myself, like, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. And I felt absolutely nothing. It was like a completely dreary week. And then something happened to um, somebody sort of in our larger community in Boston, so that several of us had to suddenly leave the retreat. And I was one of the people who had to leave. So. I thought, wow, I never even got past myself. That was really a waste of time. Um, And I was up in one of the bathrooms up there and getting ready to go when I dropped this big jar of something on the tile floor and the jar just broke. It shattered and the stuff went everywhere. And I noticed the very first thought that came up in my mind was, you are really a klutz, but I love you. And I thought, look at that. You know, you could have given me anything in the course of the week and I could not have honestly said something was happening, but something was happening. So it is somehow deeper and more subtle than a rush of feeling. Of course, we love that rush. It's great when it happens. But I wouldn't discount your practice if it doesn't happen. It doesn't mean it's gone wrong, you know. It's actually fine. I have put in many an hour of doing loving-kindness practice without any feeling, only to look back to recognize that was really important. Something was happening. So it's not an emotion. It's not a sentiment. It is about how we are oriented toward ourselves, toward others, toward life itself. And that's a very profound level of change. Loving kindness means friendship. It's developing the art of friendship toward ourselves and toward all of life. And then there is compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, each of which will be talked about to a much greater extent throughout the retreat. But they're woven in in, in many ways just as mindfulness is. Compassion is the trembling or the quivering of our hearts in response to seeing pain or suffering. Sympathetic joy is the experience of joy or delight when we see someone else being happy rather than feeling so diminished by it or frightened by it, threatened by it, thinking somehow that Happiness is a limited commodity in this world and the more that someone else has, the less there's going to be for us. But rather realizing that someone else's happiness doesn't take away from our happiness. It actually is our happiness. It can enhance our our own delight. And then equanimity, which means balance. It's In many ways, equanimity is the articulation of wisdom. It's the kind of balance that comes from knowing deeply how things are. For example, knowing that we're not in control of the unfolding of events. That loving kindness is like a freely given gift. Otherwise, it becomes what... uh, a friend of mine once called meta with an edge, like may you be happy by tonight in these ways. You know, I figured it out, and here's your list, and please improve, you know, and do it fast, and, and so on. That's really different than may you be happy. So all of the expectations, the demands, the feeling of wanting to be in control, the frustration, the sense of helplessness, powerlessness that comes from being forced to recognize we're not in control. All of that actually diminishes the force of loving kindness rather than enhances it. What enhances loving kindness is balance, it's wisdom. It's knowing, I will give you, I will make this offering as wholeheartedly and completely as I can and I can't make your decisions for you. I can't make all suffering go away. I once went to a a Tibetan teacher of mine um, because I was concerned about a friend of mine who was uh, really not doing well psychologically, emotionally and had lasted a very long time and Um, I went to this teacher kind of complaining about the nature of things. and, and, And I said something like, you know, I don't think it's fair. Why don't we get, like, one person in life where we can just look at them and say, poof, your suffering's gone, and it works. I said, I don't think that's too much to ask, just one, you know, which is not to say, you know, there wouldn't be problems with that, like which one, and you know, like when do you do it? You don't want to do it too soon. You don't want to do it too late, you know. But I was in a really bad mood, you know, and I just said, why not, you know? Because all I wanted to do was to be able to do this for this friend. And, you know, and the teacher just laughed, you know, ha ha ha. And he basically said, that's why we call it samsara. You know, in in Sanskrit or Pali, samsara is this world of birth and death, of change, of being out of control. That's the nature of things. And in the best possible understanding, that kind of wisdom doesn't diminish our loving kindness or our compassion, it supports it, it bolsters it. So it's not about ourselves and success. It is that flow of energy, unhindered, unhampered. And that is really possible for us. So, these four qualities of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity serve as our home. The fuel for the practice is intention and concentration. It's not trying to manufacture or fabricate a feeling. It really isn't. The power of it comes through the force of concentration. And the the scope of it comes through the nature of intention. It's our worldview. It's our vision of life. It's how we use our, our energy to connect. That's all in the form of intention. And concentration becomes, as I said, it's like the fuel. And so that's what we really work on. You know, we can have that um, very fleeting, very temporal, very conditioned sense of connection, and it goes away because we get distracted or we become self-absorbed or we forget. And what we're trying to do in terms of the practice is develop a kind of steadiness and a steadfastness so that we have a ground, we have a centeredness. It's not just a tiny little thought, now and then I may be happy. We need concentration, we need awareness, we need mindfulness of what takes us away. We need the skill to be able to let go of those things or to have a kind of gentleness around them. I'll tell you the second part of the um, Lucy Charlie Brown story. So I, I was invited to a yoga center one year to give a talk, and I decided that I would use that image of Lucy and Charlie Brown in the talk. And I had a yoga teacher there, a hatha yoga teacher there, who was teaching in the morning. So I decided to take his class. And my own talk was supposed to be right after lunch. So in the course of doing the class, um, he said, I know there are a bunch of yoga teachers out here. uh, He said, now we're going to do a back bend or a wheel pose, which... um, for those of you who are not familiar with it, you know, you lie on your back and you put your hands up by your ears and somehow you get up into this bow, which I could never, ever, ever do. So he said, okay, now we're going to do wheel pose. And I thought, you're right. You know, and I lied down and I put my hands by my ears. I couldn't get up. And he came over to me and said, did you get up? And I said, no, I never get up. So he helped me up and felt really good, you know, and then I was thinking, gee, you know, he better hurry along because, you know, he's running a little late and it's almost lunchtime and I've got to get ready for my talk and, you know, and then um, to my chagrin, he said, no, we're going to do it again. I thought, oh, Jesus, you know, so I lied down, I put my hands by my ears, and just in that moment, he said, I want you all to let go of all self-limiting ideas about yourself. And I laughed and I went up into this perfect bow. And then the very next thought that came up in my mind was, you're never going to be able to do this again. (laughs) But because I sort of had that idea that I was going to use, I was going to talk about Lucy and Charlie Brown, I saw that thought come up in my mind, you're never going to be able to do this again. And I just said, chill out, Lucy. (laughs) And that was it. You know, so there will be many, many, many times where we hear those kind of voices or we get distracted or we get lost or we forget where our happiness actually resides. Something happens and we need the skill to first of all be able to recognize it and then to have, I really loved that moment, you know, like just chill out, Lucy. It wasn't like horrified, I'm like the worst person in the world, here I am, I probably would have fallen flat, you know, if I'd done that. You know, or, oh no, I've got to get rid of this thought, this is so awful, I can't believe it came up, no one else thinks this kind of thing. It was such a beautiful moment of like, oh yeah, chill out. There's compassion there, there's ease of heart there, there's spaciousness there, but there's also seeing, yeah, that's what it was, yeah. Okay, there's that limiting voice, chill out. So those are the kinds of skills we develop. It's not that helpful when Lucy has taken over and has, you know, dominated the afternoon and you've already sent the email and, you know, you finally go, oh, I guess that was that old habit. You know, to know what we're feeling as we're feeling it, to see these things arise to be in touch and to be centered, not to be just swept away when they come up, to have that kind of concentration, that, that groundedness, so we can see it, we don't feel immediately enveloped or defined by it, and to also have the insight that flailing against it and hating ourselves for it does not help. There's a skill there in being able to say, Chill out, Lucy. We're working on all of that, developing concentration, developing awareness, developing that ability to let go, to return. It's actually the same skill set, whether we're working with the breath or we're literally working with loving-kindness practice as as we'll start tomorrow. When we do loving-kindness practice, we use certain phrases as what, are, what is known as the primary object, the home base for our attention. We learn to settle. We learn to return. We learn to let go of distractions. We learn to care about ourselves, even as these various things come and go. And that becomes the basis for extending that in in a very natural way to others. The practice is done through these various unfoldings, and so each day, sometimes twice a day, we'll be offering different instructions. If you start to feel like you're being rushed, you are being rushed, that's a very good assessment. Um, You know, what we will do in now seven days... Um when I finally did uh go somewhere to do this practice intensively in a structured way I went to Burma in 1985 and so what we're going to do in 7 days probably took me 7 weeks even just in terms of instruction um but you know my goal uh in teaching this kind of retreat is to really offer everybody like a lay of the land, you know, so that should you choose to continue on with this kind of practice, you have some sense of confidence about the unfolding. It's not really imagined, you know, that by the end of tomorrow you will love yourself completely, you know, and only then can you move on to any of these other categories, you know, Think of it as kind of diving in and experimenting, but you'll find your own pace. You know, maybe that you go on to do the next instruction and then you go back because that seems right to you. And It's a practice that has a structure, it has an unfolding, and we try to follow it because the simplicity of it helps with the concentration, but it also is a practice of a lot of creativity and fun and experimentation and you find your own way and, you know, that... Um, is not. I don't say that out of a kind of solace, you know, for people who can't do the real thing. That is the real thing. Um, you know, there are lots of ways of experimenting and having fun and kind of seeing what works, and you know, doing it in different ways. That is really important to to explore. So we'll do that as well. The practice begins, as I said, with the offering of loving kindness to oneself. We'll do sitting instruction. We'll do walking instruction. Um, At any time in the course of the retreat, if you, for whatever reason, feel like the right thing to do is to do a kind of mindfulness, as we did today, just sit and be with your breath or with sensations and movement, that's the right thing to do. Um, but we will also explore how to work with the kinds of difficulties that come up within the landscape of loving-kindness. We start with ourselves. We move on to someone known as a benefactor that has helped us or inspired us. Maybe we've never met them, um, but they've inspired us. The texts say, this is the one whom when you think of them, you smile. If there's somebody like that in your life, um, we move on from there to friends, neutral person. That means somebody you don't strongly like or dislike. It may be somebody here that you have not formed a judgment of by three days from now. Um, or, uh, very commonly it's someone in your life who plays some role in your life. Um checkout person in the supermarket, dry cleaner, the kind of person whom we tend not to notice perhaps um, very strongly. We work with difficult people uh, in our lives. We work with varying groups and ultimately with an extension of loving kindness to all beings everywhere, really a sense of the boundlessness of life. So that's sort of the the map, you know, of of the practice. There are times when it's tremendously exhilarating and opening. There are lots of times when it's really boring, I can promise you. Um, there are times when you're sleepy. There are times when you're restless. There are times when you're angry. There are times when you're frightened. There are times when you feel just this tremendous compassion. Um whether toward yourself or toward others. It is always changing. And there is no part of it that's wrong or incorrect. Um, You don't have to struggle. You don't have to try to make anything happen. The best thing to do is to let it happen. I sometimes um, talk about what was, in some ways, I consider a great spiritual experience in my life. When I was um, going to New York once, staying in a hotel, And I was going up in the elevator holding my very heavy suitcase in my arms when I had the brilliant thought, put it down. The elevator will carry it. And very often we do things like that. It's not that by and large, it's not that people make too little effort. It's more often too much or the wrong kind You know, so let the elevator carry it. You just do the practice. Let it unfold, let it move in whatever direction. That's the work. And that's enough. So we really will um, explore realms of relaxation, of letting go, of being at ease, of not doing too much, you know, not trying to manipulate our experience and it will, I think, be a um, strong theme for us in in this exploration. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit DharmaSeed.com